This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Let's see, I'll get this going, I think. Yeah, so tonight's lecture is called The Apostle Paul and Finding a Pattern for Our Prayers. There's a lot of pa-pa-pa in that. Um... I've been doing uh, a series on Paul for the last little while, mostly focusing on Paul and some of the more controversial passages of his around women and slavery. And so I thought I would give myself a break and talk about uh, some of the ways he prays. And actually sitting with it for the last um, couple weeks, I've realized, yeah, I kind of, it's in some ways, this is even harder and uh, demands more. Uh, than some of those more controversial passages. So we're, tonight we're going to be looking together at some of Paul's prayers, as well as I'm going to try to uh, point out a couple resources just on prayer in general and re- read a little more at length from particular books to give you a taste of um, some authors who I think have been <clears throat> quite helpful. And one that uh, will stand out and you'll hear me read a lot from tonight and it's it's good. No, I can tell everyone is still awake and is tracking with me. Uh, and hopefully people listening at some point in the future are still with me. But if you have $20, uh, or even if you don't, stop what you're doing, stop listening to this recording, and go buy yourself a copy of Prayer in the Night by Tish Harrison Warren. Uh, she is an Anglican priest, a New York Times columnist, a mother of three, um, and this is just has been a really um, it's been a wonderful book. And so I, I'm going to read from it a few times tonight, and I make no promises that I will not cry um, <coughs> publicly reading it. But how she starts early, something she says early on in the book captures what I'm after in this talk about considering some of the ways that Paul prayers uh, prays. She says this, For most of my life, I didn't know there were different kinds of prayer. Prayer meant one thing only, talking to God with words I came up with. Prayer was wordy, unscripted, (coughs) self-expressive, spontaneous, and original. And I still pray this way every day. Free-form prayer is a good and indispensable way to pray. But I've come to believe that in order to sustain faith over a lifetime, we need to learn different ways of praying. Prayer is a vast territory with room for silence and shouting, for creativity and repetition, for original and received prayers, for imagination and reason. I brought a friend to my Anglican church, and she objected to how our liturgy contained, in her words, other people's prayers. She felt that prayer should be an original expression of one's own thoughts, feelings, and needs. But over a lifetime, the ardor of our belief will wax and wane. This itself is a normal part of the Christian life. 
Inherited prayers and practices of the church tether us to belief far more securely than our own vacillating perspective or self-expression. Prayer forms us, and different ways of prayer aid just as different types of paint, canvas, color, and light aid a painter. So praying other people's prayers as a legitimate way to pray, to learn how to pray, to be formed by prayer. And so tonight we are going to consider one other person's prayers, the Apostle Paul. Paul is praying all over his 13 letters. He has different sorts of prayers. Some of his prayers fall into the convention of his day, a simple blessing on the recipients. But some of the things he does are are pretty unprecedented in his own time, especially asking for prayer. In the ancient world, asking for prayer is a, is a pretty unusual thing in the letters we have. But my hope for us tonight is to look at three prayers. We're going to look at a prayer from Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at a prayer from Romans 15. And then it's sort of a prayer uh, from Galatians 4. Uh, we'll, we'll hopefully get all there together. But we're just going to jump right in. Uh, and, and the first prayer comes from comes to us from Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, and this prayer acts as something of a transitional hinge in his letter to the church at Ephesus. The prayer, the, or the letter itself begins in prayer. More or less the whole first chapter of Ephesians is this long prayer. There's a short pause, there's like a sentence that's not a prayer, and then it picks back up in prayer. The first prayer is one of the longest sentences recorded in the Greek language. Uh, it's just it's just this avalanche of words. Um, but then there's this prayer in the middle, and near the end of the letter, he he calls he calls his recipients to be active in prayer. And so I've put it up here in the ESV translation. And I'm going to change one significant thing that maybe you've already seen. I know there's a lot of words already on the slide. Uh, and I hate when people stand up in front of other people and change a translation in the Bible because then it sort of undermines your confidence, like in the Bible. Uh, but this is an easy change that is actually true in all of Paul's letters. More or less every time he says, you except in uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, it's a y'all. It's a you all. It is a plural. He is speaking to a group of people, not to individual Christians. And so, but when we read it, it's often, we often read you, and we sort of read it through post-enlightenment, Western individualism, and we think of an individual person, <laughs> their individual life with God. Paul is not that that person. So I'm going to read... Ephesians three fourteen to 21. This is his prayer that's the hinge in the letter. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant y'all, or you all, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in y'all's hearts through faith, that y'all, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that y'all may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is in the middle. This is. It feels like it ends, but then he just sort of picks up on a, on a different train of thought and keeps going uh, right after that. But before jumping into this, I want to pull out a few observations, a few thoughts on this. I think it's helpful to get our minds around Paul and what Paul was about, uh, sort of the big story that Paul lived in, so that we could see some of... And, and discern perhaps some of why he is praying the way he is praying here. And so the way really to make sense of Paul is through the Old Testament, realizing that the story of the Old Testament became Paul's uh, story. Before he was uh, the Apostolos Paulus, the Apostle Paul, he was uh, Rabbi Shaul, he was Rabbi Saul, he was a Pharisee. Uh, and he was committed to this story. And the story is that God's intention was to share his blessing originally with his whole creation, his goodness with the created world. But sin enters into this world and throws everything into havoc. So part of God's response is that he's going to call a people. He's going to call, eventually, the nation of Israel, the least among the nations, the weakest, the smallest, And they are to be a people, a collective people that will receive his blessing and pass his blessing on to the rest of creation. To kind of bring things back to how he intended it. So this this plan of God's, that's, that's part of the story of the Old Testament, receiving God's blessing for the people of Israel and then distributing or being a conduit of that blessing to the nations. It puts a few things in place. One, that there is Israel and there is the nations. Uh, there's a distinction there. And they, that Israel receives the blessing and they're to pass the blessing on to the rest of the nations. They're a conduit of this. They're supposed to be a nation of priests, a royal priesthood, kings and priests that bless the whole world. And they live distinctly. They're called to a life of holiness and distinction. But time and again throughout the Old Testament, they misunderstand this whole deal. They love half of this equation, receiving God's blessing. And they tend to forget the other half of the equation, being the conduit of that blessing to the nations. And they tend to emphasize their distinction, their their specialness, over and against other nations. An us versus them, Israel versus the nation, uh, nations, as opposed to Israel being for the nations, um, uh, and sometimes being for the nations means being against the nations. That's a sort of different story. We can come back to that if need to. But there is a strong distinction. There are clear boundaries, and missing the second half of the equation of extending God's blessing to the world gets forgotten. And just to be clear, this is also something that's true of Christians. It's not just true of the Old Testament. They're not the only characters in the Bible or throughout history that misunderstand what God wants from them. The church is, is very good at that as well. Um, and so Paul is committed to this story and to living a particular way. But then something radical happens in Paul's life. He encounters the risen Christ and all everything is, is, is up for grabs. Well, maybe not up for grabs, but everything is thrown off. 
And he realizes eventually that through Christ, again, God wants to use the people of Israel as a means to bless the nations. It's not just that Israel receives the blessing for themselves, but they're to be a conduit of this blessing. And this sort of receiving the blessing, extending the blessing, as well as this this distinction between Israel and the nations is something that Paul thinks God is... Uh, well, let's hear how Paul actually says it himself uh, in this letter in Ephesians. So a little bit before he prays this prayer in chapter 2, uh, he's speaking about what Christ has done, this thing that has changed everything. And, uh, and it's changed everything by bringing these two different groups of people together in Christ. So Paul says this, this is in Ephesians 2. He says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, he's saying you Gentiles, remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant and the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They didn't know that blessing. But now in Christ, you, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us, us. Now remember, Paul himself was, was, an, was, was a Jew, but he's made us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And he said, he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those of us who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. And he keeps going, and he he sort of describes this new people of God that's composed of both the nations, of Gentiles and Jews together, this new humanity. And this was what Paul, this was really what drove Paul. This was... Uh, we see the composition of early Christian communities that he wrote to in a lot of his letters in Romans and Galatians and Corinthians here in Ephesians. Uh, Paul is trying to get followers of Jesus who are ethnically Jewish or maybe ethnically Gentile, who previously had nothing to do with one another, who are divided. He wants them to get along. He wants them to be one because Christ is calling all people to the Father through himself. Uh, and, and these divisions within the early church, Paul says, he says this actually to another apostle, Peter, um, in Galatians, these are not in step with the truth of the gospel. So these divisions aren't just a problem. They deny the reality of what God has done, bringing together from distinct people a new humanity. So that's a little bit in the background of what's animating Paul before we come to this prayer. This rich prayer of Paul's that we could spend a lot of time on, but we're just going to limit our reflections tonight. And so knowing some of that, I just want to read it again. Uh, though, I'm not going to read the last little bit, um, even though maybe I should. So there, now there's a little more space on the slide. Uh, hopefully you can see it well. But for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant y'all to be strengthened with power through his spirit in y'all's inner being, so that Christ may dwell in y'all's hearts through faith, 
that y'all being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that y'all may be filled with the fullness of God. So I, I want to start with one sort of practical tangent and aside. It's interesting that in this prayer, Paul actually doesn't say he's praying. He says he does something with his body. He postures his body in a certain way. He kneels. And kneeling is a sign of reverence. In, in the ancient world, kneeling and standing were ways people commonly prayed. But it's you could think about it, it's his way of saying, like, every head bowed, every eyes closed, or maybe fold your hands and put your head down. Uh, I find that I struggle with prayer often because I'm distracted. And I often pray, full confession, I, the day is busy, I get in bed at the end of the day, and I lay down, and I'm like, oh, I haven't prayed much today. And I start going through my day, but I'm laying down. My body is laying down. And before you know it, it's the next morning. And I have no idea if I actually prayed uh, or not. But if you struggle to pray, if you find yourself distracted to pray, maybe... It's worth considering doing, putting your body in a different position. There's a lot of wisdom in church practice. There's many churches that week in, week out, kneel for the confession of sin and kneel after receiving Eucharist. What we do with our bodies can be a means to orient our hearts. I think it's important. We, Sarah and I taught uh, a Sunday school class for small for kids. We did first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, and one of the ways we we taught them to pray. Uh, that we were taught to teach them to pray was like a hand prayer. And so we would have them, if there was something they wanted prayer, something that was difficult in their life. And first graders, second graders have a surprisingly high number of difficulties in their life. It's true. Uh, we would ask them to imagine holding it in your hands. What is it like to hold it? What What is the weight of the thing that you need help with? And that... It maybe isn't yours to carry. And what would it look like to let go of that? To realize you don't have to carry it. And then finally, what would it look like to turn your hands over and open your hands towards God and say, I want to let go of this thing. What do you have to put in its place? And we were told to teach kids this. And I was like, I am keeping this for myself. (laughs) And it's very helpful for me because I, just sitting and just being still, I... Anyway, what, what you do with your body uh, is, is, is helpful for your prayers. End of tangent. I don't think that's the main point we should take away from this prayer of Paul's, but I just thought it was worth, worth pointing out. I wanna, obviously, we, or we won't do everything, but I want to draw our attention to a few things. And one of them is this language that Paul uses. Paul is praying that Christ may dwell in y'all's hearts through faith. And if you have been in... Uh, revivalistic or, or evangelical circles, you've probably heard the language of asking Jesus into your heart. And this is the only biblical roots for this. This is the only place it shows up. And it's not about this imagery. It's not about conversion. These are people who already know Christ. These are already members of the church. Paul has something else in mind here. And I'm going to read... A bit of a longer section. Uh, there's going to be a fair bit of me reading from other people's books tonight. Uh, and this is from a book called A Call to Spiritual Reformation, Priority Priorities from Paul and His Prayers 
by a New Testament scholar named D.A. Carson. He's kind of like the uh, grandfather of Reformed evangelical, I think he's Baptist, uh, he might not be, um, New Testament sort of scholarship. He's, he's a big deal on that. And actually, it's just, he, he provides a really helpful image on what Paul might be after with having Jesus in our hearts. So Carson says this, It helps to recognize that the verb here rendered to dwell is a strong one. Paul's hope is that Christ will truly take up his residence in the hearts of believers as they trust him. That's what through faith means. So as to make their hearts his home. This picture becomes clearer if we think of an analogy. Picture a couple carefully marshalling enough resources to put together a down payment. They buy their house, recognizing full well that it needs a fair bit of work. What he describes here actually feels like the Labrie house uh, in some ways. Uh, he says, they can't stand the black and silver wallpaper in the master bedroom. That's not like Labrie. No. Uh, there are mounds of, actually, there's a lot of things that aren't like Labrie. Uh, there are mounds of trash in the basement. The kitchen was designed for the convenience of the plumber, not the cook. The roof leaks in a couple of places, and the insulation barely meets minimum standards. The electrical box is too small. The lighting in the bathroom is poor. The heat exchanger in the furnace is corroded, but still... It is this young couple's first home, and they are grateful. The months slip past, then years. The black and silver wallpaper has been replaced with tasteful pastel patterns. Now, again, he's a New Testament scholar. He is not an interior decorator. Let's just run with the analogy. Uh, And it is amazing that got past the editors. Um, But the couple has remodeled their kitchen, doing much of the work themselves. The roof no longer leaks. The furnace has been replaced with a more powerful unit that also includes a central air conditioner. Better yet, as the family grows, this couple completes a couple of extra rooms in the basement and adds a small wing to serve as a study and sewing room. The grounds are neatly trimmed and boast a dazzling rock garden. Twenty-five years after the purchase, the husband one day remarks to his wife, You know, I really like it here. (laughs) When Christ, by his spirit, takes up residence within us, he finds the moral equivalent of mounds of trash, black and silver wallpaper, and a leaky roof. He sets about turning this residence into a place appropriate for him, a home in which he is comfortable. There will be a lot of cleaning to do, quite a few repairs, and some much-needed expansion. But his aim is clear. He wants to take up residence in our hearts as we exercise faith in him. It's a great way that he, he rendered it. And there's, if you would bear with me, there's one other story from one other, one other example from one other book that I feel captures, though this isn't talking about Paul's prayers explicitly, the same, same dynamic about what it, what it looks like after Christ has moved in. This comes from a book called Becoming Friends with Time by a, a, a Scottish theologian named John Swinton who does a lot of disability theology. Um, and he's talking about a, a man named Danny who lives in the, a, a L'Arche community in France. And L'Arche is a community, a Christian community of folks with physical and cognitive disabilities living alongside folks who don't, don't have them or able-bodied people. Um, and it's, it's lived in a spirit of friendship and trying to follow, follow Jesus' ways through the Beatitudes. But I love this story about a man named Danny. 
Danny was a man who lived with Down syndrome. He also had a serious heart condition. One day, Danny returned to his community after visiting, visiting a cardiologist in Paris. One of his friends asked him where he had been. To see the doctor, Danny replied. And what did the doctor do, his friend asked. Danny replied, he looked into my heart. His friend smiled, and what did he see there, Danny? Danny paused and looked intently at his friend. He saw Jesus, Danny replied. And what was Jesus doing, his friend asked. Danny paused, smiled, and looked away, and then he said, he was resting. For Danny, having Jesus in his his heart was not simply a useful way of describing and illustrating the pneumatological indwelling of the Holy Spirit as those of us who interpret the presence of Jesus according to the machinations of our left brains might tend to do. For Danny, Jesus was literally in his heart and was resting. Danny, a man with Down syndrome who has a heart problem, someone whom some would not want to exist and others might consider a waste of time and resources, turns out to be a gentle bearer of a deep revelation. Jesus desires to dwell, to set up his home, and to rest in our hearts. I love that image from Swinton's, uh, Swinton's book. And I love both of these images from Carson and from Swinton, but admittedly, both of them are missing something. They're, they're both a little too individualistic still. Uh, they both don't capture the fact that this is y'all's hearts. This is a collective heart, the heart of the whole church, Jewish followers of Christ and Gentile followers of Christ. Um, G.B. Caird, who is a New Testament scholar from a previous generation, says the following thing about this verse. Love cannot be known by isolated contemplation, but only by being experienced in a community. And such are the dimensions of the love of Christ that it takes the combined experience of all Christians to comprehend it. But the thing is, this is a community composed of people who, apart from Jesus, should have nothing to do with one another. But according to Paul, even though they had nothing to do with one another, they now need one another so that together they can comprehend the love of Christ towards them. I love how Tim Mackey, who's the uh, sort of brains and voice behind the Bible Project, which is a great online resource, sums this up. Oop, wrong way. Um, he says this. There are about this about this reality. There are depths and dimensions to the love of God that are impossible for me to experience if I am not regularly with other followers of Jesus that are not like me. The y'all, the y'all's hearts, is the collective heart, the rich and poor, Jewish and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, people who, according to the prevailing logic of their time, should have nothing to do with each other. In fact, they were supposed to be against one another. There was hostility between these people. But because of the remarkable and unexpected thing done through the Messiah Jesus, the former enemy has become a vital and necessary means for them to know the dimensions of the love of Christ. As we live, work, and pray alongside those who are different than us, our world gets bigger 
it gets more complex. Our humanity can be deepened and our vision of God's love for us can be enlarged. When we commit ourselves to one another and we discover that there is more to the universe than what we think or those who are exactly like us think, our knowledge and experience of God's love for us goes to new depths that we might not have asked for or imagined. So what if fostering a common connection with another follower of Jesus whom I have little in common with, culturally or socially, what if this, and and what if it's someone who I actually can't stand, someone who I don't like at all, maybe not even because of their personality, but because of the sort of person they are. But what if having a common connection with them is a means by which I can enrich and deepen my experience and knowledge of the love of God that we know towards us in Christ? I wonder if this is why Paul prays that they may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. Because to be with all the saints is not always easy. Uh, Paul's call to comprehend the dimensions of God's love is organically connected to all the saints. No single generation of saints, no denomination, no individual church can exhaust this. Now I say this knowing full well that Paul is also someone who is deeply concerned about false teachers. He's deeply worried about other gospels. This is not like a kind of a a huggy, mushy, whatever you think is right uh, sort of thing. Theological discernment, dependence upon the Holy Spirit is vital. But if we pray like Paul prays, if we pray like Paul's prayer here, we soon realize we need to pray with others and others who are very different than us. Followers of Christ who reside on the other side of boundaries that we don't like to cross. And I don't mean boundaries like cat people versus dog people or <laughs> coffee drinkers versus tea drinkers because we know no one who's a cat person can be a Christian. So that's, like, <laughs> that's completely just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, but what a wild truth. Uh, what a wild reality that not only can Baptists pray with Presbyterians, but this could mean be a means of spiritual growth for both of them. Complementarians with egalitarians. Charismatics with non-charismatics. More provocatively, the black church and the white church. Republican Christians and Democrat Christians. MAGA-Trumper Christians with Black Lives Matter progressive Christians. Now again, I'm not trying to say that there's not sort of other issues or problems or that it's all feel good and there's not sort of truth we need to collectively work towards but when we assume that the dimensions of God's love for us in Christ are just big enough to fit within it people that are more or less just like us it's worth asking are we actually sort of following the thing Paul is talking about are we trying to comprehend the love of God or are we dealing with an idol Um, there's obviously so much more we could say about this verse, but I'm going to go ahead and move on to a second, or, or not verse, but a prayer. It's a series of verses. Um, I want to move on to another prayer of Paul's. And this comes at the end of his letter, near the end of his letter to the Romans. And yet again, we're going to be kind of find our way into some thoughts on this through um, the work of Tish, Harrison Warren, 
it's it's usually considered disrespectful to be on a phone during a public speaking thing like this. But if you have an app that you can buy this book on your phone right now, I will not be offended if you just go ahead and pull it out and uh, buy this book. It, I think it's really quite a quite a remarkable book. Uh, but as a way into this, and it's going to be a little bit of a long runway, um, I'm going to read a section uh, from uh, from the book. And it's just an interaction she recounts with a friend of hers who is a national church leader throughout, throughout the U.S. And he says to her, um, we all kind of believe the prosperity gospel, don't we? We expect God to make our life work out. And that if we do our part, he has to make things go well for us. It's the end of his comment. This is no tish. To be sure, most Christians, both worldwide and in the United States, would admit that the prosperity gospel, the idea that God rewards the righteous with health and wealth, is not true. This is not Christian theology. And yet, in some silent place in our hearts, we sense God's pleasure when things go well for us, and his disapproval, if not outright absence, in our disappointments. This births a species of Christian faith that wants resolution, performance, and results. And we often have a hard time knowing how to face and help others face situations where suffering will not resolve anytime soon, where the burdens people carry will not be lifted. We want suffering and disappointments to have a clear beginning, middle, and end. Something we can get through. A story with a tidy resolution. We buck against a vision of Christianity with no immediate results. No clear payoff. I, I admit, uh, in my own life, it's hard for me not to sort of subconsciously or subtly slip into transaction mode with God in my prayers. It resembles sort of a prosperity gospel. Where I do, I live a certain way and then I tell God the great plans, uh, I have for my own prosperity. Um, I, and I, I have a deep sense often that there should be some sort of divine kickback coming my way because of my faith, my obedience, my way of life, and my prayers. If I do things the right way and I ask for something, especially like a good thing, a noble thing, a righteous thing, I'll get it. What's animating and lurking beneath this often unarticulated approach to prayer and approach to God is an if-then logic. We know that God wants to hear our prayers and know our desires, but if we do X, Y, and Z for God first, he'll surely give me what I prayed for, eventually, especially when I pray for a good thing. And I'm quick to point out this pattern in others, whether it's um, like political culture, we get the right Christian man in office, God will bless the country and everything will work out, or in some forms of evangelicalism, purity culture, if I remain chaste and pure, then God will give me an awesome marriage and a wonderful spouse. I'm quick to see it in others, um, but truthfully, it's pretty deep within me. It goes quite Deep, And I'm often unaware of it until life doesn't turn out the way that I thought it would be. Uh, things don't go the way that I had hoped for. Uh, I had hoped for years I wanted to be a pastor. 
I wanted to pastor a church, and I even did a year-plus discernment process with a denomination and started moving in that direction. And here I am all these years later, and I'm not a pastor. Uh, I'm not ordained, and I'm a libri worker, uh, in case no, if people weren't clear why I'm here and around all the time. Um, and maybe maybe I'll circle back to that, but um, I can I can anyway yeah. But here are Paul's words. These are his prayer toward the end of his letter to the Romans. I appeal to you all, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me and y'all's prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you all with joy and be refreshed in y'all's company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is, um, again, this comes, uh, um, sort of, well, how this connects to sort of our larger propensity towards sort of prosperity gospel or transactional Prayers uh, it might take a little bit of unpacking, so stick with me for a moment. But this this prayer of Paul comes towards the end of his massive letter to the Romans. And similar to Ephesians, he devotes a lot of space, a lot of mental energy, and time to the Jewish-Gentile dynamic in his church. Uh, and from what we can tell from this letter, the church in Rome would seem to be composed of Gentile and Jewish followers of Jesus who had similar struggles of not sort of self-sorting and, and, and um, separating from one another and looking down on one another and judging one another. Uh, similar things to what we saw in his letter to the Ephesians. But Paul is asking all of them to pray for him in some future travels that are coming. So this maybe makes a little bit more sense if we... Nope. Uh, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm just not sure what's forward and backwards with this thing. All right, here we go. So it makes a little, potentially a little more sense if we think about, uh, this. So this is the Mediterranean, and in, in the, in, in Paul, in that little prayer, Paul named, uh, a couple places. The, well, first off, he's writing in what's, uh, in Corinth. He says later, he's, he's writing with a bunch of people that are from, the church in Chantria, which is down here, sort of in Greece, and he's sending it to the church in Rome, which is sort of here in Italy, maybe? I'm not, it's, anyway, it's in Italy. <laughs> but he, his first prayer request is, is for him because he's going to Jerusalem, which is way, way down here. It's not like it's on the way. He said, um, is this, nope. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not doing this right. I was so excited about these transitions, and now they're just so embarrassing. Uh, uh, but his prayer requests are, he wants to be prayed, delivered from unbelievers in Judea, his service in Jerusalem will be acceptable, and that by God's will, he can come see you all in Rome. So there's he's, he's sort of laying out a future travel plan. And, and the first thing... Um, I just want to focus on for a moment is this service um, uh, for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Jerusalem, as we just saw on the map, is not exactly on the way. It's very much out of the way. But he's going there, and he talks about this a little bit earlier, because he wants to deliver a collection. 
Paul has been busy throughout the Gentile world planting churches among Gentiles. We're going back to that early thing. Gentiles, Israel, different people. And all the while, there's been some problems. There's been uh, a famine in Jerusalem down here. This is where Christianity was started, in Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem church, which is pretty much exclusively Jewish, uh, has become deeply impoverished. So Paul, as he's planting these churches, setting up these new networks of Gentile believers, he's raised a collection that he wants to bring to Jerusalem. He wants to uh, bring it with him. And so that's why he's going so far out of his way from Corinth down there before he goes to Italy. And ultimately, he wants to go on to Spain. Because Spain, he's never been to Spain, and the gospel has never been preached there. He says that a little bit earlier uh, in Romans. But this offering is kind of a big deal to him. He talks about it in a lot of his letters. Um, And he's collected it from Gentile churches. And if it's accepted by the Jewish church in Jerusalem, this would not only be seen as an endorsement of his work amongst Gentile Christians, it would forge it would forge some bonds and create real solidarity between the Gentile churches and the Jewish church in Jerusalem. This thing we've been talking about, that Paul has been working so hard uh, to bring these churches, these different ethnic, these ethnically different uh, Christians together. So it would create solidarity and create a bond. But if this collection is rejected, the rift will most likely only grow deeper between them. So Paul asks them to pray for him. All right, I got it right that time. Before he goes on about a 3,000-mile trip, which is a big trip today and was even a more significant trip in the first century. So here we go again. I appeal to you all, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in y'all's prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that uh, my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable. That's that he could bring this collection from the Gentile churches. Uh, And so that by God's will, I may come to you all, come to Rome with joy and be refreshed in y'all's company. And as he said in a few verses before, this one on here, from there, go to Spain. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So I just want to, again, consider these three requests. He's praying for three. He's asking them to join him and praying for three things. And again, before he was Paulos Apostolos, he was Rabbi Shaul, Rabbi Saul. He was a Pharisee, he was a zealot, he was a violent persecutor of Christians. But he met Jesus, and his life got changed. And in the process, he made a lot of enemies. People did not like Paul. And in fact, the book of Acts recounts the journey that he, act, he he takes after writing this letter. Uh, he takes on his way to Jerusalem to deliver these funds. And on that account, he says, I am not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So he knows this prayer about being delivered from unbelievers. He knows there's trouble ahead for him. His second prayer request is again that the collection or his service for Jerusalem would be accepted uh, by the saints there. We talked about that for a minute. And the final thing is that he would be able, after that, to go to Rome, uh, both to sort of put his feet up for a little bit with joy and to be refreshed, uh, 
but also, as he said earlier in the letter, that it could be a base for his future ministry uh, to Spain. These are the three things he asked them to struggle or to wrestle in prayer with him over. And the, the, in, within Paul's letters, we don't see an answer or we don't know how these prayers played out. But for some of them, we do. Uh, some of them are recounted in the book of Acts uh, from the rest of the New Testament. It's interesting, um, this middle request uh, about uh, his collection being accepted in Jerusalem and all of the theological and social uh, ramifications of that, uh, how important that was to him. Uh, we know that Paul made it to Jerusalem because he ends up on trial before a guy named Felix, and he says, I've come here because I to bring uh, my people gifts for the poor. So we know he makes it there. But oddly enough, it, it's not recounted whether or not the gift is accepted. Uh, we don't know if this gift that would be a symbolic gift that would show unity and solidarity between Jewish and Gentile believers about the legitimacy of Paul's gospel, we just don't know. Uh, some scholars believe uh, that it happened, and as you might guess, some other scholars believed it didn't happen. It is a surprising absence because it's not like Acts ends. I mean, we know the story goes on, but Luke, for whatever reason, uh, does not recount it. So it's it, that we don't know how it was resolved. Uh, his first request to be delivered from unbelievers. This was, well, sort of, uh, sort of answered. In one sense, it wasn't. Paul was arrested, he was tried, he was imprisoned, he was poorly treated. But on the other side, he there were three times that's recounted on the trip that he goes that there was a mob that kind of gathered around him to lynch him, more or less, and he was rescued. Uh, traumatic experience, but they didn't get him. One time he was getting flogged. Uh, same thing, it started, but he was able to get away. And there was another plot to take his life. So in a sense, he was delivered from unbelievers, but it was... It was perhaps not in the way that he imagined. And his third request, that he would go to Rome to see them, to be refreshed um, in their company, and to have joy with them. Paul did eventually reach Rome, but it took more than three years. Uh, it was more than three years after he had wanted to. He did so as a prisoner, and he did so having survived a catastrophic shipwreck. Whether or not he went from Rome to Spain, we don't know for sure. Uh, there's some church fathers that say he did. There's other church fathers that say uh, he, he didn't. We do know that he died in Rome as a martyr, uh, whether or not that was without having gone to Spain or maybe going to Spain and come back. I, I don't exactly know. But it's hard to imagine that when Paul asked for these prayers, when he was praying these things for himself, these sorts of scenarios were the ones he had in mind, the possibility for these prayers. For many of us, these sorts of answers or ambiguous answers or non-answers or delayed answers are crushing. They're heartbreaking. They're very, very confusing for many of us. I thought this is what God had for me. I thought this is who God wanted me to be with. I thought this is what God wanted me to do with the rest of my life. 
Speaking for myself, there's something, you don't want to ever just take pleasure in someone else's troubles, but there's something reassuring uh, to know that Paul's prayers, uh, Paul's not, the, not all of Paul's prayers were answered um, as he assumed they would be. Mine haven't, I, I don't believe all of yours have either. These prayers are by no means also the only unanswered prayers in Scripture, uh, and nor are they prayers that the answer, if the person praying it, once if they knew what the answer was, might not have prayed the whole prayer at all. The center of the Scriptures, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his betrayal and abandonment by his closest friends, the night before his death on a cross, he prayed three times, Take this cup from me, adding, Not my will, but yours be done. And the truth of the matter is that the answer to Jesus' prayer doesn't come in the form that he initially asked for. Paul himself knew this. In his correspondence with the Corinthian church, he recounts this pretty wild, uh, potentially out-of-body experience that he'd had 14 years Prior. He said he was caught up to the heavens, he saw things he can't describe, he heard things he can't repeat. It was amazing, it was this incredible spiritual experience. But right after having it, he is given a thorn in his flesh, a messenger from the devil, to keep him from being spiritually conceited. And he pleads with Jesus three times to have it taken away. The same amount of times Jesus prays that this cup would pass from him. And it's actually, I think it's the only time in Paul's letter that he talks about praying to Jesus. He almost always talks about praying to the Father. Here he talks about he pleaded with the Lord, who is Jesus. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to take whatever this thorn in the flesh uh, is. I'm not going to take it away from you. It's going to remain. He says, though, in my process, in the process of this, my grace will be sufficient to you. This is, of course, not the answer that Paul had hoped for or what he had in his mind. But 14 years later, when he's recounting this, uh, when he's recounting this uh, to the Corinthians, he said it's because of that thorn in the flesh. He knows that in his weakness, Christ is strong. It has made him the sort of person that he is. Um, and to pray if it is your will, or sometimes people say in Jesus' name, as a way of summing up according to your will. It often seems like the easiest, the most thoughtless, the most pious thing to sprinkle on top of our prayers. It just feels empty. And it might be the easiest thing to say, but it is one of the hardest things to learn, especially when prayers are not answered in the way we would have them. Again, uh, I want to read from Carson. He has a comment on this that I thought was helpful. He says, suppose for argument's sake that every time we asked God for anything and ended our prayers with some appropriate formula, such as in Jesus' name or according uh, to your will. And I just, maybe I didn't make it clear, but Paul includes that here, that by God's will. Uh, suppose that we pray that um, uh, and we always ended our prayer with that and we immediately received what we asked for. How would we view prayer? How would we view God? Wouldn't prayer become a bit of clever magic? Wouldn't God himself become nothing more than an extraordinarily powerful genie to be called up, not by rubbing Aladdin's lamp, but by praying? Please give me the ideal spouse today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Please raise up 82 more missionaries for Zaire. Complete with their support by the end of the week. In Jesus' name, amen. What an easy and domesticated religion. But this is not true religion. This is magic, not worship. It is another power trip, not hearty submission to the Lordship of Christ. It is superstition, not a personal relation with the Father who is wise, good, and patient. He may give us what we ask for. He may make us wait. He may decline. He may give us the goal of what we ask for, but by quite another means. Um, there's there's more to say about this 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 whole phenomenon of unanswered or um, prayers coming and answers to prayers coming in ways uh, we didn't hope for. But I want to move on to one final. Oh wait, yes, one final verse about prayer, and in a way, it's sort of. It's we'll see how it's a prayer. Uh, but it has to do with the question of what does it mean when Christians pray to God as Father, as Paul so frequently did? What is built into that name? And once again, as an entryway into this question about what does it mean to call God Father, and a reflection on Galatians 4, I want to read a section uh, from Tish. Has anyone purchased the book in the last few minutes? No, just since I, anyone tonight? No? I just, I just thought I'd put it out there. So I brought, uh, I brought tissues in here with me because, uh, I've read this a half dozen times, uh, out loud and I've yet to not cry. So we'll see. So she writes this. When my eldest daughter was very little, she would get stuck on certain questions. She'd ask the same thing for weeks sometimes months, over and over again. Her dad and I would try to answer her as patiently as we could for the 110 billionth time. There are two questions she asks over and over. The first has become a bit of a family joke because now as a big kid, she doesn't remember how often she used to ask it. The latter is so tender that I don't joke about it because I identify with it so deeply. First, Around age two or three, for months, she'd ask, What's your first name? Her dad would answer, Jonathan. What's your middle name? Edward. Edward, she'd replied, as if this was new and interesting information. She'd not already, uh, had not already been told her three times that morning. No, not Edward. Edward, he'd remind her. Then she'd continue, What's your last name? She'd ask all of us. Me, Jonathan, strangers, anyone who was willing to tell her their name in full. And she'd ask as many times as possible. Eventually, thank God, she stopped with that question. Years later, a different question bubbled up. Mama, do you love me? Daddy, do you love me? She was a little older now, and she knew she was asking the question a lot. See, she admitted so. She'd say, I'm sorry, I'm asking again. But she needed to hear the answer again and again. She didn't ask because we hadn't told her we loved her, but because it's so easy to doubt it, to question whether it's true, to forget, to wonder whether the answer can be trusted. We all need to hear it over and over again. I come to God again and again with all kinds of questions. But all of them, in one way or another, 
boiled down to the two questions my daughter has asked me thousands of times. What is your name? Do you love me? In the scriptures, a person's name is always linked to their character, who they are and what they are like. My constant question to God is, what are you like? Can you be trusted? Are you good? And I ask, do you love me? Will you tell me again? It's hard for me to remember and to believe. Are you a God of love? And is that love for me? Even here, even now. Um, It's a peculiar thing that Christians speak of God as Father. Christians confess, ultimately, that God is Trinity, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Easy peasy. But in prayer, it's common that we pray to the Father. Jesus teaches his disciples to speak to God as our Father in heaven. Paul, in his beautiful passage in Ephesians 2, about God bringing together two people, making a new humanity, says, through him, Jesus, we both have access in the one Spirit to the Father. This naming and its relationship is peculiar today because fathers get a fair bit of bad press. Single-parent families throughout the U.S. are overwhelmingly headed by overworked, exhausted, and underappreciated women. The deadbeat dad, the emotionally distant dad, the absentee dad, this is the trope that pervades pop culture, and sometimes for legitimate reasons. I was shocked to read Bruce Springsteen uh, make a seemingly offhand comment that absentee fathers are in fact the heart of rock and roll. He commented that it's all one embarrassing scream of daddy. It's just fathers and sons. And you're out there proving something to somebody in the most intense way possible. It's like, hey, look at me. I was worth a little more attention than I got. You blew that one, big guy. It's a peculiar thing, too. It was a peculiar thing, too, in the ancient world for early Christians to speak of God as Father, but for different reasons, especially in the way and the frequency in which they did. In a really lovely, very simple uh, book uh, on the Lord's Prayer, New Testament scholar Wesley Hill comments that there are nearly half a million words in the Hebrew Bible. And in those half a million words, God is portrayed as Father some 15 times. Yet, when we turn to the New Testament, we immediately notice gone is the reserve of the Old Testament when it comes to calling God Father. The tally by the time we reach the end of the Gospel of Luke is 65. And we're well over 170 by the end of the Gospel of John. Throughout Paul's letter, he adds 13 letters. He adds, referring to God as Father 41 more times, according to my count. And I'm not a New Testament scholar like West Hill, so my numbers might be off. Now, it's worth taking a moment and saying that when we speak of God as Father, the desired connection point between God, who is decisively and decidedly not a being like beings in this world, And so he's not biologically sexed, he's not gendered. 
The connection point between God and a father is not in maleness. Wes also comments in this little lovely book on the Lord's Prayer. He says, feminist theologians have pointed out that we can easily toggle between thinking that God is beyond gender, but we call him father, because that is what the Bible authorizes, and thinking that we call God father because he's male. The former is what Christianity has always taught, but the latter is what many Christians seem to hear. And that, feminist thinkers rightly warn us, is dangerous. So the connection point is somewhere else. In particular, the connection point is the relationship between Jesus and the Father. And it's a relationship that he lets those who trust in him, those who follow after him, piggyback off of. They get let in on it. And so chief among those followers who want to piggyback in on this, get in on this, is Paul. And so we hear Paul describe the experience of of the gospel uh, here. And he says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you all are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And just to be clear, son here is not talking about like a biological son because you all are sons. Uh, in, in the earlier part of this, Paul's working with an image of receiving an inheritance. And in the first century, it was just firstborn sons who would receive the inheritance. But he's, it's a collective y'all. He's writing to the whole church in Galatians, men and women. They're all included in that, in that sort of, in that sonship. But Paul is describing the experience of salvation here, and he pulls in each member of the Trinity. We can see the Son, the Spirit of the Son, crying, Abba, Father. And if you were paying attention, actually, all three members of the Trinity showed up in the previous prayer, as well as the prayer before. Uh, Trinitarian theology often gets a bad rap as being obscure. It doesn't touch down on anything. It's about precision and all this sort of stuff that's just for kind of an elite intellectual few. And I love what uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has to say about this, and its response to someone saying, you can't even imagine a three-personal being. I like where he takes this. So Lewis says, you may ask, if we can't imagine a three-personal being, what is the good of talking about him? This is Lewis's response. Well, there isn't any good talking about him. The thing that matters is being actually drawn into that three-personal life. And that may begin any time, tonight if you like. What I mean is this. An ordinary, simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He's trying to get in touch with God. But if he's a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, inside of him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ the man who was God, that Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening? God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he's trying to reach. God is also the thing inside of him, which is pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or the bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. So the whole threefold life of the three personal being 
is actually going on in the ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. The man is being caught up into a higher kind of life, what I call Zoe, or spiritual life. He is being pulled into God by God while remaining himself. And that is how theology started. I love that, that he, he, he speaks of prayer, or he speaks of, rea- of the Trinity not as theological abstraction and calculus that's very difficult to wrap our heads around, but it's the thing that undergirds us. It's the reality of our prayer. We, it's in the previous prayers, but it's, it's also here in Paul's, ex- Paul's explaining our experience of the gospel. When the fullness of time had come, God had sent forth his son, and ultimately we become sons. So what is Jesus's by nature, that he is God's son, is shared with us through adoption, through redemption. And there is this double sending of God from God to us. Just as the son was sent, so the spirit of the son is sent. And it is sent into our hearts. It's ascending forth by God of God into our inner person from which we speak together with the Spirit, and we cry out to the Father as Abba. Now, Paul wrote in Greek, and he deliberately employs an Aramaic word of deep significance to early Christians. Abba is a name, and it is a name that Jesus alone was remembered for using to speak to his Father. There's different aspects of the name Abba. It, it sort of sounds like Papa. It's a homely word. It's an intimate word. It would be one of the first words that children would learn to speak. One of the first things out of their lips. But the only time that Jesus uses this word is the night where he's betrayed by his friends when he's in Gethsemane. He speaks out of his darkest hour like a child waking up from a nightmare calling from his father but calling for his father in trust. And this is the name Jesus lets, uh, that Jesus, it shows Jesus' relationship with his father, and it's what he lets us in on. He authorizes his disciples to use it, and in the process, he gives us a share in that relationship. So I got two more books quickly to read from. One is from um, Martha's best friend, Tim Keller, uh, in his book on prayer, um, where he's talking about this experience, about the Father sending the Spirit into our hearts so that we know the Father in the same way that the Son does. Uh, Tim Keller writes this, There's no emergency flare or desperate, anxious gamble. We could add there's no posturing and attempting to be a rock star either. The Spirit gives believers an existential, inward confidence that their relationship with God does not now depend on their performance as it does in the relationship between an employee and a supervisor. It depends on parental love. The Holy Spirit takes a theological proposition and turns it into an inner confidence Enjoy. You know that God responds to your cry with intense love and care as a parent responding to the cry of pain of his or her child because you're in Jesus, the true Son, 
you can go to God with confidence of receiving that kind of attention and love. Put another way, the Holy Spirit gives us a confident faith that turns us, kind of spurs us on to cry out in prayer. And so this one word, Abba, that we call out, that the Spirit sort of bears witness within us, it both tells us God's name, and it tells us that God loves us. It answers Tisha's daughter's questions. I'm going to end uh, in um, by reading a section, a brief section on on what it's like to pray this, or how we pray this, or how to get this sort of into us. This comes from the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, his little book, Being Christian, sort of an introduction to the Christian faith, his section on prayer. And I, I like this because, to me, this sort of sums up, I, I, if I could rename this lecture, I just would have named it something about, like, Paul as a student. Like, Paul learned to pray from Jesus. Um, Jesus calls God Father, and so much of what Paul is doing is because of how Jesus prayed, because of how Jesus talked to the Father. So, William says this, It seems that all Christian reflection, all theology worth the name, began as people realized that because of Jesus Christ, they could talk to God in a different way. It was a new experience of Christian prayer that got people thinking, if Jesus somehow makes it possible for us to talk to God in a new way, then surely there are things we ought to be saying and believing about Jesus. And so the great exploratory business of theology began to unfold. Um, The newness of prayer is expressed most vividly by St. Paul in Romans 8 and Galatians 4. Romans 8 is very similar, uh, the the end of Romans 8 to Galatians 4. Then he quotes from Paul, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The new way we talk to God is as Father. And that is the work of the Spirit of Jesus. And of course, it is the prayer recorded of Jesus himself the night before his death in the Garden of Gethsemane. So for the Christian to pray before all else is to let Jesus' prayer happen in you. And the prayer that Jesus himself taught his disciples expresses this very clearly. Our Father. We begin by expressing the confidence that we stand where Jesus stands and we can say what Jesus says. Some kinds of instruction in prayer used to say at the beginning, put yourself in the presence of God. But I often wonder whether it would be more helpful to say, put yourself in the place of Jesus. It sounds appallingly ambitious, even presumptuous. But that is actually what Paul suggests we do. Jesus speaks to God for us, but we speak to God in him. You may say what you want, but he is speaking to the Father, gazing into the depths of the Father's love. That, is, in a nutshell, is prayer. Letting Jesus pray his prayer within you. That is where I want to stop. And I've gone on a bit longer than I anticipated. Thank you for sticking with me. Uh, I'm happy to talk about anything related to this. Um, But you are also all... Any of y'all are free to go. Um, but, um, thank you. Yeah.
also the least amount of crying I did um, through reading that passage. It just, like, it gets me. If you don't have a question, you're ready to go to bed, you're also free to sneak out. I'm not offended. I think so. Yeah. Well, I think also Paul's, uh, you know, Paul's apparent uh, dismissal of the of the law. I think, um, and uh, you know, I think he relativizes. Like he obviously doesn't make circumcision and you know strict adherence to the law um, necessary, but he. He seems to be, I'm just thinking in Romans about like eating, and also in Corinthians about like eating meat, and he seems to be like kind of quick to say like, it's about being together, don't do something that makes folks stumble. But I do, I do, it does seem like, um, it seems reasonable to think he was looked on with a fair bit of suspicion <laughs> because of how he, you know, talked about the gift is, grace is free, it's not dependent upon it's not like you receive the gift and you follow all of these rules. Um, uh, it's you receive the gift, your heart is transformed, your life changes. But so I, I think I think it's like Paul was also a bit of a um, yeah. I mean it. Yeah, he was maybe looked on a little with a little bit of. Uh, suspicion, but yeah, I, yeah, and I just I don't know. I don't. Yeah, it doesn't. I'm I'm not I'm not like totally sure. I mean, sometimes people really want to play up like strong differences between like Paul and James, and say James is representing Jerusalem and Paul, and I, I just I, I I mean that makes like a cool story, but uh, I just don't think it actually does justice to. I think they're they speak in pretty different ways, uh, but I think they're they're about the you know the same thing. But, um, yeah, yeah. I was just wondering, first, how do you address the the parts of the prayer that talk about the saints? I feel like that's kind of a concept that's difficult for me to like put myself into an understanding of like what did Paul mean when he talking about the saints. Especially, like, is he going like Old Testament, or is he referring like people, like, the gospel writers, and like disciples? Like, what is he? Yeah, yeah. Or the people who are more important. Yeah. Uh, what do you mean when you say is he going Old Testament? What does that mean? I, I don't. I mean, I don't know if he refers to like Moses. He just said Yeah. The thingy where they're on the hill and like the ghost things. I thought, what? That's 
Yeah. I mean, I just think he means those that are in Christ. Like, I'm, I'm just looking quickly. Like, Corinthians, he refers to all the saints. Sorry, where is it? Uh, the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I mean, he says a similar thing about... Um, uh, at the beginning of Ephesians to the saints who are in Ephesus. Is he also in Philippians? I don't think he does. Philippians he mentions overseas. Oh no, he does to the saints. So I think he just means those, those who are in Christ. And like it's this amazing thing, especially like in Corinthians, because he calls them saints and then he's like, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> like, it's just like time and again he's like, you're doing this wrong. Like it's not, um, I, I really, I don't actually have a strong understanding of like, uh, like how one becomes a saint like now in the Catholic Church or how even the Orthodox Church distinguishes certain people and what, what exactly it always means. Um, I, I just don't actually know, but I think for Paul, if it's a way of, of speaking about like those who are, those who are in Christ, so. Which would mean like All of us. you and me and, right. and yeah yeah yeah. But in, in the ways in which you're saying that of creating a unified body and a unified church, like together you are set apart. Yeah. Yeah. Someone else might. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Um. Oh, I don't know. It, I don't know if that one is a result. But um. I was wondering, is there any is there any speculation on the significance of Paul praying to Jesus? Um, there might, I'm sure there is. Um, uh, I don't, I don't actually know. I've just, I just noticed from my reading and then a few other things that like the general pattern is like to the father through the son in the spirit is like, is sort of the the language. I don't think that means like don't pray to Jesus because or any or don't you know ask the Holy Spirit to come. One of the oldest prayers in the church that we know of is Veni Sancte Spiritus, come come Holy Spirit. Um, but uh, yeah, it's. I mean, I, I was actually planning up until like a couple of days ago. I was going to talk about Second Corinthians twelve at more at length, but then decided to switch to this prayer in Romans because um, Second Corinthians twelve is like. There's just a lot going on there. But, yeah, I do wonder if he is, um, in a way... So, 2 Corinthians 12 comes at... Part of, like, the story of 2 Corinthians, I think, uh, from what I understand, is that, like, um, Paul had planted a church in Corinth, he'd written to them, and then something had happened, and they were like, Paul is a dud. We don't really want to follow Paul. Because he talks early in Second Corinthians, I think in chapter 2, about he doesn't want to have to have another painful visit. I think he came, they talked things through, and ultimately they decided, all right, we're with Paul. Uh, but I, Paul talks, especially towards the end of Second Corinthians 12, about these super apostles, these like all-star, flashy, um, really good teaching and... 
Paul's contrasting himself with them, and he goes through this long like catalog of the times he was beaten, the nights he stayed up, he's shipwrecked, how he went hungry. He's sort of presenting all of these um, ways. He's just super unimpressive. Like he lo- his life looks like a failure. Um, and then he tells this story where he's caught up. It doesn't appear like he's planning this. It's not like he's looking for a mystical experience, but he just has this crazy experience. Um, and it's interesting how he, how he sort of tells it because he's, he sees visions, but he can't describe what it was. He hears things, but he can't tell you. Um, and so he's caught up into heaven and then he's like immediately brought back down. Um, and it seems like that would have been an instance that perhaps would have impressed the Corinthians. Like, wow, you had this crazy, you know, forget the super apostles. If Paul has this, these out of body mystical experiences. Um, but he's like, actually, that's not really what matters at all. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going (laughs) to tell you what I heard. I'm not going to tell you what I saw. But what I am going to tell you is that, um, right after it happened, I got a thorn in my side to keep me from being conceited. Um, like, puffed up and um, and then I think he I wonder I don't know I wonder if he's I don't think he's literally saying I only prayed three times Lord remove I only pleaded with the Lord three times remove this I think he's perhaps trying to echo Christ the story of Christ in Gethsemane like in the same way um, and presenting himself that way and again he gets this sort of a similar answer no. Uh, but I think it like builds to his main point is that like when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. That's the sign of an apostle. Like that's when we see God's glory shining through his people, not through, you know, not through our super strength or our super intelligence, but like when we're weak, when we're emptied, when we have nothing, that's actually when the God, like that's when God's power is most like evident. Through us, I think that's like his big like point in that section, um, and so I just wonder if he's. I wonder if he just presented it in a way that is to call to mind. I mean, I know also three is this. I, that part is just like speculation. Um, so, but uh, you know, it is significant that Jesus prays three times, and it is interesting that he does. He does the same same thing, and. Um, gets sort of a similar a similar sort of response um, which works to in a paradoxical upside down way like authenticate um, authenticate his ministry and but yeah I don't anyway yeah I don't know if there's a particular reason why I mean he says he pleaded with the Lord um, uh, and the Lord is always Jesus. God is always the Father um, and Paul. But, um, yeah. Did you have your hand up then, or did you? Yeah, I, just, I just thought uh, I hadn't, I hadn't uh, thought of that before. After he describes this amazing experience, he refuses to tell them what it was uh, as being just hammering home that same point. If, if he knew that the Corinthians would be impressed by basically a big splashy spiritual experience, that's the time to tell them something he really wants them to do. You know, like that, that's like 
the typical spiritual manipulation, like, yeah. here's what I want you to do. I, and God told me this. You know? Yeah. And yeah. I was actually caught up into heaven, and yeah. this is what I saw. Therefore, you know, yeah, about, yeah, a way, yeah, yeah. about a way of grabbing, of claiming authority yeah. to, to, to tell them what they need to hear. And the fact that he tells them this happened and then deliberately doesn't say anything about it. It's and really, says, I'll boast really in my weakness. Yeah, like, yeah. he's talking about, I'm not going to boast, I'm not going to boast, but I'll boast in this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. There, I, you know, I mean, this is tangential. I bet there is something, because uh, the little that I know of, like, people who study Second Corinthians is they're like, this is where Paul's rhetoric is, like, the best. I'm like, okay. But, um, <laughs> but like, people, yeah. So, I, I don't know. That would be an interesting thing um, uh, to look at. And is that experience the same as the Damascus Road, or is this a different experience? Of I think it's a, I think it's a different one, yeah. um, and I wonder if he had more um, yeah. uh, because he talks about. I mean, he talks about his experience on Damascus three times in Acts, mm-hmm. um, but other people who under, I don't understand the dating of letters and documents and everything like super well, but. What I did read did say it doesn't it doesn't like kind of line up to the fourteen years um, that he says uh, it happened. But yeah, I don't I don't totally know. But yeah, it's a pretty wild like yeah like like ten, eleven, and twelve in Second Corinthians are just like what like like all the stuff he went through. It's just like. How, yeah, and I, that's where it's, it's like interesting to, um, a few years ago at a Labrie members meeting, one of our colleagues from the, uh, Minnesota Labrie gave this devotional on, um, Tom, Thomas and like missing out, missing out, and he like, like stood in Thomas's, like what would it feel like to have been Thomas and, and since then I've been like reading the Bible slightly, and I've just found myself thinking about like, like you were shipwrecked that many times, and like, what would it feel like to be like floating at sea, you know, in the ancient world where there's no lights, and you know, this? I was like, what would that? I am I totally abandoned, you know? And like, to be flogged, you know, for uh, forty lashes minus one, I think five times. Is what, call that accident prone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Accident prone is a. Uh, but like just getting in his like, like, and then to be able to be like, to stick with it, and to not be, not to be embittered, um, and like not to be, uh, um, not to give up, um, and I think all this like paradoxical stuff. Like he, he's anyway. I just they're really interesting. Yeah, I just think they're interesting. This sounds weird, or this sounds like wrong, but like, I love Jesus, but Jesus is fully, fully human and fully God. I know we're dealing with a paradox. But to me, there's something interesting about people's lives who aren't fully divine, who are, are flawed, who are clearly difficult to be around, uh, who have enemies, uh, who, you know, can get zealous and who can make mistakes and have to apologize, but who, like, there's something about that that's just so wild to me, and it feels a little closer. Uh, and so I'm just trying to like get in Paul's mind as I'm like 
frustrated with being in traffic or something. <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh, and it's not because Paul is awesome, even though he is. Like, but Paul like was transformed and like uh, was. I think it was a continual thing. And um, I think, yeah. Anyway, I could keep going. But you had your hand up, Sarah. Uh, yes, I was curious. I think you said that it was not common to ask for prayer. Yeah. And Paul asked for prayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, but I don't think you said a whole lot about that. I did it. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering, yeah, is there... I don't, I don't, I didn't bring the book over, but there's a, um, there's a book that I got that is a, um, when certain scholars, when scholars turn like 65, their former students will get together and write them like a collection of essays. And there's this one, woman named Susan Eastman and her the essays in this book I forget what you call it it's in it has some German title Festschrift. yeah yeah that what Festschrift? Festschrift. yeah but one of them is on Paul and prayer and because I somehow I saw the like uh, the title and I was like great there's my lecture I'm just gonna get I'm gonna read it <laughs> and it's just like nothing like almost nothing tonight except that line came from that <laughs> essay. But it's like uh, he goes through other ancient conventions of letter writing. I should have brought the book over. But he quotes from letters. And you're like, wow, this sounds just like an introduction to Paul's letter. Um, Paul does do, like, his whole grace and peace. Like, he he adds peace. Uh, or Yeah, yeah, he adds peace. And he sort of, uh, he he, I forget what the exact Greek word is. Maybe Aaron knows this. Uh, maybe he doesn't. But um, the Greek word that's like, it's sort of like blessings. Uh, or it's it sounds a lot like charis. I think it's like karin or something like that. But Paul says grace instead. And so it's almost like Paul is like, there's like a pun almost at the beginning of, there's like a slight play on words. Uh, he does a, He says grace and peace. That sounds like sort of the standard blessing, but it's definitely... Christianized, it's like through the lens of Jesus and, or through the, um, but they often sound when they, when they say, you know, I, I make mention of, I mean, one of the things Paul says is like, uh, yeah, every time I remember you or I mention you in all of my prayers, and there's just tons of ancient letters where pagans are saying the same, the exact same thing. I'm always mentioning you in all of my prayers, but not not to God the Father and to Jesus by the Spirit, uh, to some other God. But he says it's it's pretty much uh, more or less... Paul is basically one of the only ones who asks for prayer uh, and says, pray for me. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for us? Um, so it's interesting that Paul falls in like a convention. Like he's, he's, his, he's like falls into sort of the yeah how people wrote letters in the ancient world but he's clearly thinks of prayer pretty differently uh than than ancient people did not only like theologically but even just asking for prayer um was was just a unique thing so yeah this anyway this essay you can look at it it's in the it's in the little nook but um yeah it was just one of the things he talked about which i thought was was interesting and just shows like um, yeah to ask someone to pray for you um, when you're like a spiritual 
like authority in that community is is sort of quite a humble thing. Uh, it's not just like, here I am, Paul, praying for God to bless you, and you know, blah 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 blah. But like, actually, I need you <laughs> to pray for me because <laughs> uh, it it's just it's it show. I think it shows like a lot of the distinctions that were like wider cultural distinctions that carried a lot of weight. Like I think early followers of Jesus, those things didn't matter as much, like because of how like because of how God met them. And uh but anyway. Yeah, do you it actually just I mean it, it made me think of Jesus asking Peter, James and John mm. to be in yeah. the garden with them. And they're going to sleep and like yeah. there's something like Jesus was inviting yeah. Them into intercession for him. Yeah, watch and wait. Kind of like, yeah, prayerfulness. Yeah. For him and for him that, yeah, there's a precedent there. Well, and all, I mean, another, another, yeah, another praying for, um, uh, I think it's, um, no, I'm, I might be wrong, but, um, uh yeah, I mean I think I think Paul also lived in a pretty like spiritually charged war like you know, like earlier in Ephesians he's talking about principalities and later in Ephesians as well he's talking about principalities and powers. And I, I think Paul really thought and I think he's right, there's a like a spiritual battle. Um, it's being waged. And one of the things that I think is so interesting is right before this prayer about them all coming, you know, together, that together, these people who were formerly apart, um, he says, this is in three, to me, even though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, and that mystery is that, yeah, all people, like, and mystery doesn't mean, like, unsolvable thing, it's something that was always true, was hidden, but now, um, is revealed, but anyway, he, um, oh, I'm reading, sorry, the wrong part, I'm sorry, um, where does he say this, um, uh, talk amongst yourselves for one moment, But he talks about, um, yeah, he's, oh, sorry, I wasn't the right part. Yeah, the, uh, and he says, anyway, uh, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Um, and it's not like through the proclamation of the church, it's not like through the teaching of the church or this. It's just like through the church. It's just through Jew and Gentile coming together, becoming one new humanity uh, that basically is a threat. Um, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly. So like there's all these, like even when we're just talking about church and getting together across 
divisions that always divide us, theological, social, whatever. For Paul, it's like, we need to come together to show the, like, this principalities and powers. Like, there's, there's spiritual forces that are at work. And, I mean, he's not, he doesn't lay out in super, you know, clear detail, oh, there, there are these, like, sort of the geography of the spiritual world or all of that. But, like, it, anyway, I was just saying, like, it seems like Paul lives in a world that, like, it's like a battlefield um, uh, in a lot of ways. And so I think that's one reason why he wants he wants prayer, because uh, he probably feels like he's in it all the time. But, yeah, sorry, Marty, were you going to? No, I, I found it really helpful what you, oh, the whole thing, but you're pointing out um, some of the prayers that Paul asked for that but that we don't have any indication that they were answered, or they weren't answered the way, or they were maybe the answer was no. Yeah. And I, and it just taught me that I've been reading Luke, and that in terms of sort of trying to put yourself in the shoes of someone here, I was thinking of John the Baptist, and mm. John the Baptist sending his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one who's to come, or are we to wait for another? And I looked back and realized, well, John the Baptist sent that question from prison. He'd already mm. been imprisoned. And yet, he was the one, the voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. He was the cousin mm-hmm. of Jesus. He was, yeah. He, he, you know, he recognized Jesus when he was still in the womb, and he had this incredibly mm. special place. And Jesus, he doesn't answer with yes or no. He says, "Go and tell him what you see." And then he, he, you know, the, the people, the people are being are being cured, yeah. and basically the whole thing that. The whole passage in Isaiah about when the Messiah comes is what he's going to do, and he basically lists those things. Yeah. Um, but I just wonder whether John's question didn't come from his own sense of abandonment. Yeah. You know, being there, yeah. he was. He was the one who who mm-hmm. prepared the way for Jesus, who introduced mm-hmm. him, who baptized him. Um, yeah. And uh, and Jesus goes on and says, if you know, among there's no one greater than John the Baptist, and yet even the least in the kingdom of God is greater. But John the Baptist is in prison, and then a little while later, he gets beheaded. Yeah. And you just, you know, you just wonder yeah. what. I mean, it hadn't occurred to me before. Yeah. Where these, where this, these questions of his might well come from? It's just if you, if you are, yeah. if you are the one, why am I? Why am I here? Why am I in yeah. prison? And, I mean, Paul is in prison when he writes Ephesians. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. like uh, he's he's in prison all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. But no, it may. I want to. I mean, I don't know what's the last letter of Paul canonically. I don't understand. Yeah. I don't understand all that. But at least one of the like like last later letters of Paul, I think it's reasonable, is like is Second Timothy, and he ends. Um, yeah, he says, do your best to come to me soon, to Timothy, for Demos, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Yet Mark and bring with him, uh, bring him with you, for he is very useful. And he goes, he goes, when you come, bring the cloak, blah, blah, blah. But he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, very strongly opposed. He says, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, 
so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And he says, the Lord will rescue me. But like, yeah, even one of the, like one of his last letters, it's like he's getting towards the end and it's like, yeah, deserted. And, and, and that experience of being left alone and not just like deserted by, you know, like the first day at school, you meet someone in, in the first class, and then at recess they hang out with somebody else. Like these are people who walked alongside him, sort of maybe labored with him, like who knew him. And yeah, how to how to get into like that sense of abandonment? And yeah, anyway, they just yeah, but there's the bio, there's very real people, <laughs> and very I I think yeah spiritually. Uh, resonant, uh, often. And you, just, you just wonder how the health and wealth gospel got going, given that this, yeah. this, it's so. I mean, I sort of get it because I, yeah, 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 but yeah, no, I know, it's yeah. But yeah. I gotta wrench in this. Yeah, yeah, do it, do it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the part, on that part of the health and wealth. Because you have what the theologians call the Deuteronomist, which is the last few chapters of Deuteronomy lay out: you do this, and this is going to happen to yeah, you. Yeah, you yeah. do this, the other going to happen. You obey God; yeah. these things will happen to you. You disobey God; you're yeah. going to be really nailed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have Job and uh, Luke 13, where Jesus talks about the tower falling on. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and giving a totally different message. Right. Yeah. Uh, if you think you've, you know, you're suffering because you've done something wrong, you have Job's friends who are exposed at the end of being completely fraudulent, having nothing yeah. to say about God, though they thought they were defending God. Jesus himself saying, don't think that the people on whom the tower fell or who, who were, yeah, yeah, were yeah. murdered by, by um, Pilate in the temple were especially evil. Um, how do we? There's something to the yeah. to the uh, and, and and with the Deuteronomist is say something like the, the the arguments of the Book of Proverbs, which are very much in that way. You yeah. behave this way, this is going to happen to you. Yeah. Don't be a fool. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and uh, you mouth off all the time, and you're going to be called a fool. And you, and, or yeah. you get angry all the time, you're going to get in terrible trouble. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And uh, all sorts of ways to expect God, God's abandonment or God's blessing on you according to your mm-hmm. the way you've lived. Um, is there a distinction between things? I'm, one, I'm feeling my way for that, but I'm not sure of it yet. I just yeah. wonder whether... whether yeah, um, yeah. Does anyone have any thoughts on it? Did you ever hear... Or, oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think even, you know, next to Proverbs or with Proverbs... You have Ecclesiastes, and yeah. you have wisdom is is somehow living in both <laughs> both both worlds, and uh, you know one. I think living in only one can uh, lead you to like a, a definitely a good work ethic, but like maybe a naive sense of how things are gonna work. Where the other, if you only live live there, can lead to. Cynicism and disengagement, and you know, or whatever. Um, yeah. So somehow, somehow they're both, and I, th- I, I, I don't have a 
a, uh, a perfectly kind of thought out answer. I understand. I would love for, well, maybe not, but, uh, the, but I, I'm like, there's a part of me that, like, the thing, I don't, I don't happen to want, like, a nice car and really great, like, a different suit to wear every day or whatever, but, like, I don't want to be in debt, like, and I want to have three square meals and I want to be able to go out to eat once or twice a month and I want to have a car <laughs> and, you know, my understanding of 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 things is is determined by living in living in the wealthiest moment in human history, like in the you know. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't know. There's a sense where I I don't want all of those excessive material things, but I there are things I want, and I would really like God to give them to me. And if me, I still can fall in the trap of thinking if I act a certain way, if I do certain things, they're going to eventually come my way. And um, so I, I, on a gut level, I, I connect, I think I've just, I've read too much or whatever to totally buy into the health and wealth, you know, gospel. But I'm sympath- I guess I'm just trying to be sympathetic mm-hmm. to people that are, are pulled into it and Especially if you haven't read some of the other, I guess there's a part where it's like, how have you not read, you know, the Passion of Christ? Like this was not a, uh, unless you think that's just he did that just so that it never has to happen to anyone else again. But it. Joke. I had a thought. Anyway, yeah. To start thinking about it, which is that the we have a cause and effect. The Deuteronomy, let's say, of the Proverbs. That's not talking about events that just break into your life, like the tower falling mm-hmm. on someone, or even Paul getting arrested or something. Things that are external maneuverings of history that you get clobbered in. Uh, hurricanes or yeah. earthquakes or something like this. Uh, it seems, or what happened to Job, mm-hmm. uh, being deathly sick. And, and, and catastrophes to his family, and so mm-hmm. which were sort of external history breaking into his world, mm. and it's those things that we're particularly told. I, I would have thought from Jesus' teaching mm. uh, that you can't try to read providence on these yeah, and see what God was doing when these things happened. Mm-hmm. Back off, be humbled, uh, yeah. and, and admit that we don't have a clue. On the other hand, the things that are much more imminent to our daily life, you speak trash to your wife, you can't expect that to be to lead to a good marriage. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. Woo. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like you get directions as to how to run the run a, yeah. a blender, and if you don't follow the directions, it's going to screw up and, and do something wrong. It, it's almost we'll yeah. the, the, that kind of a, a more immediate cause and effect that that Proverbs is getting at. Yeah. Most of us can see the clear connections that you come up in Proverbs. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. And, and we've experienced it ourselves. Yeah. That maybe there's a, a legitimacy of seeing cause and effect, not as absolute, yeah. not as guaranteed, uh, because God is sovereign over the whole thing. Yeah. But that doesn't apply at all to how historical events impinge on you. Yeah. You get caught by a world war or you get caught by 
Yeah. You end up in, in you know, in the World Trade Center at, mm. on 9-11 mm-hmm. in the morning. Mm-hmm. We have a friend, friend of Chris's who mm. had a meeting there at 8 o'clock, but he was out. And he was walking. In the morning. He, he was out by 8.30 yeah. in the morning. Yeah. Uh, you know, why? Yeah. You know, you just have to say, thank yeah. God we have some other people who didn't get out. I think it's we're really forbidden from marching in and trying to mm. apply private mm. principles yeah. that we think we understand as to why those things happen. Yeah. But it seems to me that maybe a, a little bit different on uh, on the on the more immediate. Uh, yeah, there's there's an order to the world. There is some yeah. like amidst that we're told. About. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. A more, and and just or uh, like a, a a natural order. You plant the seed if you water it. Make sure it gets sun, yeah. sunshine. Unless there's something wrong with the seed, it will it will sprout. Uh, and some like there is order. There's some predictability, but there's also a lot of chaos. <laughs> the world is Drought. a broken, sinful place. Yeah, yeah. And uh, genetic now genetically modified seeds that will only grow with certain uh, fertilizers. But yeah, mm-hmm. did you? Yeah, did you want to add that? Yeah, just a thought on that as well, Jake. I think that. Um some of the genre considerations uh, what is the genre of a proverb it's not to say Tension. There's a lot yeah. of obviously yeah. helpful study to, yeah. to each of those uh, forms of literature. Yeah. Did anyone else? Have? Oh, yeah, Mary. Yeah. Deuteronomy also was given to the secret in that saying God is the secret things of God. Yeah, 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 yeah. Secret things of God, but those things that are revealed. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Anybody else? Anything? Anything else unrelated? If not, go once. Gone. I was going to do going twice, but I changed my mind. So, all right. Thank you all.